listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, as always, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-GM, Miguel. It is the 22nd of August, 2023, and we are recording episode 160 today, if you can believe it, McGill. And again, you know, it's it's pretty... Things stay pretty much the same on my side of things because I've been just telling the story of my ongoing 5e campaign, Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, and... Uh, well, we just keep telling the story in sequence. We just go on to the next operation. My my players, the interplanar super spies that they are, they just get operation after operation, and I've just been going through them in order. Meanwhile, McGill, for this present chunk of the podcast, we are covering Wicked Ones, the forged in the dark rpg where you are monsters running your own dungeon that's right inspired by dungeon keeper this is a forged in the dark rpg from ben nielsen and victor costa and on our last episode i gave it a sort of an overview and we built tom a character i, I was trying to remember is it buzz or scuzz I buzz. Think it's buzz right it's buzz buzz the goblin shaman with a headdress and a spear and some sunglasses yeah. And on this episode, we'll be getting a bit more into the actual like gameplay of Wicked Ones. And I'm excited. Seems pretty fun. Yeah, I'm excited as well. It's definitely a game that uh, interests me from the get-go, you know? If someone said, do you want to play Wicked Ones? I'd say, hell yeah. So, where do we want to start? Do you want to start with my side of things? Yeah, let's uh, let's cover what Coyote's Aegis is up to. So when we left off, they had just departed Omega Base for the Draelic Front on their respective vehicles. Gent, the Kenku on their motorbike, and Hex the Lizardman and Connor the Half-Orc in their jeep. And uh, Morgar, the uh, Orc General, his armored car gives an easy guiding point to follow from Omega Base to the front as Gog is riding a piece of towing equipment behind it that was originally meant for artillery, Gog being the uh, ogre commander of the Draelic forces and the Draelic military. Along the way, you pass companies of Draelic soldiers still marching across the acrid plains to the front, the last ones to depart Omega Base. When the party arrives, they see that the Draelic army now stretches along the tree line of Agalok as, as far as they can see, Along this perimeter are several structures like the one they visited in their previous op, as well as fortifications including watchtowers and palisades. They follow Morgar and Gog to a forward center posi position where the palisades are bolstered by a battery of three black powder cannons. And once they have departed their vehicles, they are immediately directed to a station where weapons and supplies have been stockpiled. Here, each of the party members is given a specially prepared brain cap with each of these, a brief explanation is given. You can eat one of these to cure existing magical madness and to protect against further magical madness for up to an hour afterwards, but taking more than one at a time will cause magical madness. Eating a, a treated brain cap takes one action. I have these listed as brain cap plus, so everybody gets a brain cap plus. 
Oh, BrainCap Plus, uh, my favorite streaming service. Mm. Around the staging area, the party sees various ranking soldiers addressing their squads and explaining the dangers inherent to Agalok. Beyond the naturally dim conditions under the forest's massive canopy, it is recommended that the soldiers not rest too long in any place within the forest boundary. The forest also has a tendency to jam divination and teleportation magic, meaning that the army can't benefit from magical detection or deployment from the outside. Finally, a general warning is given that magic has a tendency to behave erratically, so the Draelic soldiers should be wary of any sign of magic use in the field. They are reminded that this military operation will be frustrated by the forest's supernatural features, with each unit very much relying on their own wits to function and survive. On the way to the Omega base, Connor is smoking one of the Cohibas he bought while he barrels across the desert. Meanwhile, Hex is just doing a weapons check, making sure he's got a fresh E-cell in. At this point, they're among the soldiers at the staging area. They've each received a brain cap plus and can see and hear various companies of soldiers being briefed all around. After a little while unattended among the soldiers, Morgar finds the party and approaches. Alright, got your first objectives. The army is going to be spending a long time moving through the forest, just getting into position for the battle. Meanwhile, your team will have ample time to find potential allies in the forest like our Mykonid contact. If you haven't got a map, I recommend you get your hands on one before heading out. We basically want you to search the forest for potential allies we, while we prepare the assault on Ashgrain outpost. For example, as I mentioned before, Ashgrain outpost is built on the backs of non-human slaves from all over Agalog. Should be a good angle from which to approach recruiting locals. Meet with whatever allies you can find, rally them to our cause, and then have them head for Ashgrain Outpost. He pulls out a map of his own and unfolds it, showing it to you and tapping on Ashgrain Outpost. When you're ready, make your own way to Ashgrain Outpost. Follow the boundaries of the settlement until you met up with our army and we'll give you your next assignment. Any questions? And uh, Hex asks about uh, where to get the map, and he's pointed to one of the various supply stations where they received the treated brain caps, and Morgar says, we're stationed around here, we have stations around here where you can get whatever necessities you need. And Gent inquires, are there any incentives we can that can be granted to help grease the wheels with these potential allies? And uh, Morgar scratch, scratches under the side of his helmet and says, did you have anything particular in mind? And uh, Hex made a joke about somewhere in a distant land, Mephili's ears are burning, being the one who always asked about, uh, you know, special <laughs> incentives. And uh, Gent says, well, allies may be interested or concerned about their own issues. If we help them out, then they are more likely to help us. Maybe brain caps to offer for their own feared madness or weapons or money. Not sure what people of the forest may want, but would be good if we had some ability to grant it. Morgor nods. Munitions we can certainly offer, in keeping with our promises of liberation, though I wouldn't make your team carry a crate of guns and ammo through the forest. You can definitely promise them that much once they meet with our forces. Beyond that, the destruction of their oppressors is our main pitch, and, of course, if they join our force, then we'll be able to give them treated brain caps as well, Morgar says after thinking on it. Hex goes off and finds a map station. He easily swings by a supply station and asks for a map. Seems the cartography office has been busy as they seem to have many maps of Agalock available. As a little thing is like last time, last episode or, or recently, they had their uh, sort of briefing in the little forward cartography office. But the whole reason it's like 
it was kind of foreshadowing the fact that like they were making maps of Agalock and it was all the existence of the of the cartography office was pointing towards this inevitability that they would uh, you know eventually get all their cartography done for the area. Tom, I have a question for you. Uh, yet another one related to the grander plotting out of your campaigns, but like you know, uh, placing great importance on cartography, for example, that feels very inspired by like actual war history. Did you uh, draw upon like war history, actual history of war to uh, to help create some of these these ops, these operations? So at the inception, not really. Um, when I designed these ops, I did not particularly, I, I had just sort of thrown together all these elements that were like, you know, um, I knew that I wanted to introduce various like facilities of the empire. I don't, I don't know. Part of it is also just goes back to that like fiasco playset uh, approach that I was doing where like I'd give myself a list of locations and characters and, and, uh, motivations for those characters, like side to to motivate side quests for the players, and so I sort of just like, you know, threw together all that stuff and let it fall where it where it fell. Um, in keeping with like the design of the of the uh, modules that I was taking inspiration from, but I will say that once we got into this act. I was, it was the period of time where I was very much like watching a lot of Band of Brothers, The Pacific, um, reading a lot of yeah, see, this, this is ab This is totally why I ask is because I know that you have a, a recreational interest in that stuff as well. And it only, it only sort of makes sense that uh, in such a sort of war centric, war operations centric campaign, you might draw upon real world history. Yeah, it was particularly the part I was talking about earlier where they they saw all the soldiers gathered and, like, there's the different ranking officers giving briefings all over the place. That reminded me of, like, you know, sort of what I visualize when I'm reading Sharp and things like that. And it's funny because I'm not sure that at this point... In fact, I'm pretty sure uh, this was long before I got into really all that all that sort of stuff um like you know this we were playing this like in 2020 i'm not sure when exactly uh oh no right i had like just recently gotten into black powder and tabletop and stuff so it's long before i got into sharp but it was i don't know part of this was also just generally like like i say just like taking the elements and putting them where they they fell like um you know, one of my elements that I had drawn up was like, oh, there's a cartography office and I'm just going to. But, you know, one thing, actually, now that I think of it, is talking about that fiasco approach. The fiasco playset that I used for this act was the fiasco playset that's set at the end of World War Two, Lucky Strike. Oh, well, there it is. So, yeah, it's it's actually it's not like it's not like I took these disparate elements and, and threw them into place and had to really come up with why they were there or anything. I had sort of plotted together like that I was using the World War II playset 
And so that would generate me sort of military facilities. And then throughout the act, whenever they were meeting with people, often I would have the meeting in one of these designated military facilities, um, which throughout the act I placed on Omega Base or at the perimeter of Egg Lock, all that sort of thing. Does that answer your question? It does. It does indeed. So, um, once they've got their hands on some maps, uh, Connor grabs one too, just in case, but Gent uh, explicitly does not. And Hex is like, you took a peek at the map back in HQ. You've got a vague idea at least. And she's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, so it comes to a question of, are they, are they leaving the vehicles here? And uh, I say, that'd probably be the best call. The motorbike might be able to fit, but the terrain is liable to change drastically as you travel, and you don't want to have to leave it in the forest wherever you encounter an obstacle it can't pass. And uh, so with that, they head into the forest. Um, uh, Alex made a little reference to Baldur's Gate, which is all the rage now. He said, to battle and no regrets, which is one of the voice lines that you can... Uh, have on your on your main character in the old Baldur's Gate. Um, another note I say regarding the vehicles is that leaving them here, they'll be under significant protection of the army's rear guard here at the staging area. And uh, Gent agrees to leave their motorbike behind, but says, I'm going to learn the names of whoever's going to be guarding it just in case they fuck it up. And uh, they enter the forest... As the remaining might of the Draelic army passes through the tree line, though they are heading separate from that force, and uh, they, they are separate from that force and have a different heading for the time being. And so I get everyone to roll four survival checks each, all with advantage. And uh, so everybody rolls pretty high. We got Gent gets 17, 17, 19, and 23. Hex gets 24, 21, 24, and 21. And Connor Jeez. gets 22, 21, 22, and 16. So the lowest number is 16. I say, as you pass under the shade of the canopy, Gent is quickly able to apply her shadow training in order to become virtually undetectable. Hex stalks the forest like a natural-born predator in his element as a lizardman and a survivor. And Connor provides a thin light to guide the party through the darkness of the forest. Not enough to give away your position, but rather a faint divine compass to help you navigate while Hex uses the map as a seasoned wilderness explorer. Navigating the forest, they find themselves entering a shadowy copse of grey stone-like mushrooms the size of trees. Recognizing a potential lead, they traverse deeper into the forest beyond this point to discover a dell lit by the eerie teal glow of phosphorescent mushrooms. Once they've entered the dell, it isn't long before their myconid contact, Issa, enters from the opposite end. The myconid is surrounded by a mist of spores and gestures for the group to remove their protective headgear, reminding them that they must inhale the spores in order to communicate with Queen Issa. Gent says, right, this one. Gent removes their helmet, and Hex and Connor follow suit. I assume this means the time has come, Issa's voice gently enters your minds. I was able to deduce from the scouts I helped to inform that a large-scale operation of some kind was in the works. I trust you are moving against the mantle? Hex explains, working our way there. Ashgrain outpost first. And Issa nods. I will assist you however I can. We're looking for potential allies to aid us. We can offer weapons and medicine and support. Do you know of anyone in these woods who'd be able to, or willing to take up arms? And initially, they sense hesitation. 
And Issa says, Unfortunately, brokering peace with the other Mykonids is not an option. While I am infinitely grateful for res my rescue from their death sentence, your violation of the agreement we made with them will make them more enemy than ally. Better we not involve them in this conflict. As an alternative to their assistance, I can offer my services in helping infiltrate and influence the enemy's defenses. The place you speak of, Ashgrain Outpost, is operated by slaves, yes? I am aware of some who have escaped into the forest. They are scattered, for now, but they could be easily rallied to form a resistance. And Gent says, that could definitely be looked into. Anywhere you suggest we start looking? And Issa nods, and they sense a familiarity with a number of landmarks within the forest enter their consciousness. Among them are a river running through the forest southward, with a waterfall at one point and a deep gorge nearby. And, uh... At this point, it also uh, becomes a bit of a thing where the uh, team discusses, like, what about those uh, humans that they rescued? Do you remember at the beginning of this act, there were humans who had been kidnapped by uh, demonic goblins, demon-worshipping goblins? There was a little goblin kid that they rescued, and then they went into the... There was a huge den of goblins... That they uh, got through and there was a goblin. There, there was a demon among the goblins. Anyways, uh, the people were nut farmers. Do you remember that? The nut farm? So they, they basically, they're discussing like potential allies and stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, what about those nut farmers? And uh, they, after discussing that and bringing up the possibility of contacting those nut farmers as potential allies... Uh, Hex says to Isa, I'd show you where the camp is, but I don't know how to smell that way. Can I point it out for you on a map? You can meet our leaders there, Morgar and Commander Gog. They'll want to meet you. And Gent thinks about the location really hard. And Connor shows Isa the meeting point designated on the map, and Isa nods. Isa departs for Ashcrane Outpost, assuming that the party is done, and they are. And so they continue their search for allies. And uh, the next thing they head for is uh, that farmstead the, that the nut farmers had. And uh, Alex says, we can stop by it while we try to find this waterfall that Issa showed us. And it's hard to track time within the forest. They suspect they've been traveling roughly two hours, a leisurely jaunt by their standards. They have difficulty remembering the exact way to the farm that the humans had initially been captured from. But Connor and Hex use their maps to determine the likely location by remembering the presence of the nut farm in the area. They travel some way through the forest, still within the glow of the phosphorescent flora scattered about the brush at their feet. The strange colors cast across the trees around them make them feel uneasy the further they go. The farm is still some ways off, they believe. They begin to feel as they, though they are being watched. They sense movement up ahead. Gent disappears into the shadows, rolling stealth with advantage and getting a nat 20 for 36. Connor hangs back a bit. Hex starts sneaking as well and gets a 28. Uh, Connor tries to hide, gets an 18. And moving in their direction, they recognize the shapes of a small group of illithids, seven in total. Despite the natural fear inspired by such a large number of mind flayers, their demeanor seems somewhat how subdued. They remind the group of a procession of monks. As they come closer and closer to the group, they suddenly hear unfamiliar voices in their heads. Peace. Peace, friends. And Gent thinks to herself, fuck. And Hex tries thinking, who goes there? And the voices continue, neither raising or changing in their placid tone. We have come to give thanks. 
we of the den have long been vexed by the rogue thought, whose cursed instrument you now carry. We wish to know who corrected our most shameful failure. And Hex goes, oh, ah. And Gent goes, do they mean the rod? And they, uh, I say, Gent suspects they mean the rod. And Gent asks, what failure are you speaking of? Gent comes out of her amazing stealth. And to their surprise, uh, the Illithids already have their attention large, turned largely towards Dent, Gent. This is the sort of thing where, like, Gent thought that she was so well hidden. But the thing is, the Illithids are not approaching the group. They, uh, well, there's that, but the Illithids are not approaching the group. They're approaching the rod that Gent is carrying. That's what they're oh, looking for. Oh, I was going to say, like, obviously the Illithids can also detect them just mentally, right? Yeah, exactly. I totally assumed that the greatest failure they were referring to would have been something else from the Writhing in the Dark adventure, personally. I mean, it was. I mean, it was, but I thought it would be more like Rogue Thought was the failure or something like that. That's what they're saying. Oh, really? They just know that the Rod is a sign of having defeated Rogue Thought. Because that was... Remember last time we established that Rogue Thought was like an illithid warlock, and that Rod was his, like... Sorry, I was confused. I thought that they were... I thought between what these these illithids were saying and what the party members were saying that the rod was the failure, but I see that I my assumption the rod is just correct. kind of was... represents the defeat of Rogue Thought. And got Rogue it, Thought got was it. the failure. So by by defeating Rogue Thought, they addressed they they've corrected their most shameful failure, is what they say. And uh, so uh, Hex is thinking to himself, "Don't think about calamari. Don't think about calamari. Don't think about calamari." And the these uh, illithids, they all give a simultaneous low bow. And they say, The rogue thought that left our number, we of the den. Such a wayward member of our kind was a stain upon our collective memories and persisted. It endangered us. It brought chaos and madness, threatened to infect us as it was infected. The illithids all begin nodding to one another solemnly. But it has been removed, eliminated. We did not know how. But we sense its cursed implement, a mockery of our very form made hateful and mad. When Illithid raises a hand and points out toward Gent. How did you come to acquire it? Do you know who purged the rogue thought? And Gent is going to look very uncomfortable and says, I am sorry to hear you suffered so and have the burden to tell you the news that your former member has passed. And the Illithids all nod. This is known to us. We sensed its destruction. Do not regret informing us. We were all glad of the news. Do you know how it happened? And Jen simply says, self-defense. The Illithids look to one another briefly, as though unclear what they mean, what Gent means. Eventually, one of them seems to clarify through in- intuition what you have told them. They all begin to nod once again, and then bow to Gent once more. We are indebted to you, stranger. What shall we call you? I am Gent. If you don't mind me asking some follow-up questions, do you know where your former member got this rod from? And what were the thoughts they had? Also, do I notice anything six-like in these ones? Maybe in symbology? The Illithids seem to confer with one another. After a moment, the one who seems to be doing most of the speaking transmits, This is a difficult subject for us. It is also difficult, we believe, to your understanding. A few of the Illithids nod. And I get the... I get Gent to roll Perception and or Investigate. And I say, might as well roll Insight while you're at it. Perception and Investigate with Advantage... And she says, so all three? And I say, yeah, but I don't think you have advantage on insight from anything. 
So she rolls uh, 24 for perception, a 26 for investigate, and 25 for in insight. Um, and I say, you certainly don't see any obvious signs of Gratz or his number on these illithids. There are seven of them, plus the rogue thought that would be eight. They are wearing fairly plain black robes and cloaks. They don't bear any obvious iconography or abnormal physical traits. And Alex says in brackets, for a bunch of brain-sucking squid men. And I say, moreover, you get the sense that these illithids are being remarkably open with you. Apparently out of some sense of respect, which they gained for you out of the assumption and apparent confirmation that you slew the rogue thought. And Hex thinks at them, hey, who were those other guys that tried to kill him? And pictures the alien guys in his mind. Is that a demon? Ah. And uh, this the is gift. the first thing the illithids begin to try to explain the, to Gent. The rogue thought refers to the renegade illithid itself rather than a thought the renegade had. Then the illithids try to delicately illustrate to Gent that the rogue thought created the flail through some obscene means which seems to disgust the illithids too much to share the details of. This is all more explained through telepathy than with words. The illithids give off a sense of brief disdain at the memory Hex shares. Gif. It follows. Such deviant behavior as the rogue thought exhibited was bound to endanger us to all to such creatures. It is necessary that we conceal our presence from such raiders. But the rogue thought was, as explained, corrupted with madness. It is only natural that its lack of caution brought its natural enemies to fall upon it in its number. After a few moments, no, no demons. Though the rogue thought was obsessed with such things. Sought to unlock abyssal powers. Nothing more than madness and mutation. The other Lilithids all seem to mutter that, this in their minds like an echo. Madness and mutation. Madness and mutation. Gent asks, did the rogue thought mention dreams? And Alex says, do Illithids dream of demonic sheep? And Chantel says, I want that on a t-shirt. And I say, the Illithids consider this. In a sense, dreams are not familiar to us in the manner they are to your kind. But we know of the manner in which dreams may be manipulated. This is similar to the manner in which the rogue thought sought to draw upon a abyssal power. The Illithid tries to illustrate the idea of an Illithid channeling demonic energy through itself. As a comparative illustration, you see an image of a human sleeping in bed and then an Illithid transmitting into its mind. This looks like an animated diagram which matches the image of the Illithid channeling demonic energy, though the source is unclear. And Gent says, nice. Well, is there anything you need? We're currently trying to stop the demons who twisted the rogue thought, and we would use any support you could provide. And the Illithids say, We shall assist you however we can, for you have assisted us already in ways you cannot possibly comprehend. You will find our combined powers quite useful, we believe. Our presence alone will instill fear in any that oppose you. At your command, we can do much more than frighten your enemies. There's almost a smile in the voice delivering that last line. And Hex pulls out his sending stone and tries to think of who to message about this strange new ally. And he says, uh, and I say, you can contact Morgwar. Alternatively, Coyote or Trey can basically forward necessary messages to whoever should hear them. He says, yeah, I just didn't get Morgwar's number ever, I don't think. I'll write a message through Trey. Made friends with Illithid. Should we forward them to Morgwar's base? Please advise. Trey appears in the crystal, though the image is distorted and fuzzy due to the effects of the forest. Affirmative. Will advise. Trey responds. The channel closes. Shortly after, the channel opens. Confirmed. Send any and all potential allies through to Operation Failing Moon. Please confirm. And, uh... 
Gent explains to the crew of Illithids where their base is and suggests they head there and bows slightly to them in acknowledgement. The Illithids comply and their procession shuffles off into the forest. And Hex says, confirmed allies en route. Roll out the wet carpet. And then they get back to heading for the nut farm. And Jet says, see, Gent is quite the diplomat. And uh, Alex says, keeping the staff worked out pretty great overall. Really just a great day for Gent. And uh, I say, it takes another couple of hours before you reach the relatively clear portion of the forest where the nut farm is located. You're a bit tired, but you know your work has just begun. Reaching the farmstead, you're reminded of the season by the cold, crisp air. It seems har harvest time is over. And Gent says, remember to beware of scarecrow fucks. And I say, the area seems pretty quiet. <laughs> what are you looking for? And Gent says, any difference since the last time we visited? And I said, colder, less corpses, less obvious, uh, less obvious re evidence of raiding. Seems the trees have been harvested bare and are headed into winter mode. And then I have everyone roll perception and investigate with advantage. Or, or just uh, Gent. I have roll perception or investigate with advantage. They roll a 17. I say, oh, and no scarecrows that you can see. And uh, I say, you spot the sheds. The one with the ritual circle appears to be to have been boarded up. Do you remember that? Is There were some sheds on the nut farm, and one of them, they like uh, looked inside, and there was a mysterious like ritual circle and a weird black candle and stuff. Yeah, but did they investigate it any further? Not really. And now they've come back, and uh, that 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 place uh, that shed's been boarded up. So there's a farm farmhouse with some storehouses on the other side, and uh, Gent rolls perception and spots someone pass a window in the farmhouse, a humanoid with a candle. Gent hisses at Hex and points, starts being stealthy as they go toward the farmhouse to peep in. Rolling stealth, getting a 23 and a 26. I say, you approach the farmhouse, you become aware of muffled speaking within, as well as some movement. While Gent is sneaking around, Connor spots one of the humans that they rescued walking out the front door. Oh, hey, long time no see. The man is startled, but gives a smile and a wave upon, recognizes, upon recognizing Connor. He walks towards Connor. Behind him, they see the doors of one of the storehouses open up, and four humans emerge, pulling carts loaded with wicker baskets and woven sacks. Uh, Gent rolls uh, insight to do a sneaky peep on the nut farmers. Meanwhile, the one that's meeting with Connor says, Greetings, friends. What has brought you to this quiet corner of this vast forest? And uh, he says, Well, funny thing, really, but uh, Connor lifts his shotgun. War! And Gent, I say, Gent, you don't know a whole lot about running a nut farm, but you get the sense that these people here are shutting things down and ready to move for the winter. The carts likely have enough product for them to trade while they travel elsewhere, such as the city of Decima outside Agalock, to the east along the southern coast. The man frowns at Connor. I hear this word with great sadness, he sighs with a shrug. However, I can assure you with utmost happiness that we are just now preparing to move on for the coming win winter. Our house is in order, our goods packed. We shall soon see the place you hail from, beyond the limits of our forest home. Connor says, Well, hopefully what we're bringing does this land better than what we'll be removing. If you pass any soldiers on the way, tell them you have the blessing of Coyote's Aegis. Or Empok's Finest, if that's what they're calling us. The farmer nods with a smile. Thank you, sir. I can hardly express how much this family owes you, both for our past rescue and our continued protection. You have granted us a new outlook on our livelihoods going forward. Connor says, Paler's light smile on you on your travels, farmer. 
the farmer returns the blessing and then hurries to join his family who have brought out the carts and seem ready to depart. And Jet says, hmm, still seems suspicious to me. And Hex sidles up to Jen and says, should we check that shed real quick? Real quick? And Jed says, absolutely. So once the farmers have left and can no longer notice such trespasses, they head for the boarded up shed. They notice the other sheds are locked, but this one is simply boarded up. So Jet checks I'm it out. Really, I'm just going to say it now. I'm really hoping that this is a, like a red herring reveal on your part where they go into this shed there is a ritual circle, like, surrounded by magic runes. There's a candle. Obviously, some magic is being performed here. And then they investigate it further. And it's like a druidic ritual to make sure there's a good nut harvest or something like that. Very possible. Um, I They're checking out the shed. And I say, how do you get in or open it? And Hex says, I'm just going to straight up smash that shit once they're gone. Gets an unnatural 20 strength check. And I say, you break into the shed. You find that it is cold and empty. A number of torn, empty, woven sacks have been laid on the floor inside. You suspect they were left here intentionally to cover the circle beneath. And Hex says, do you think they were cultists? Weird nut-farming cultists? And Jed says, do you think we should kill them? I say, to clarify, you guys informed the humans you rescued about the nut-farm after you had found its original occupants slain when investigating the goblin raids. So the people you saved moved in and are not the ones who originally lived here. If you had to guess, it seems most likely that the circle in the shed frightened the new residents, hence why they covered up it up with rags and boarded up the shed, only using the other ones. And Hex says, "Well, they didn't want to fight for us. Let's keep moving and see if we can mention the see if we can find these other slaves that Isa mentioned." And uh, they see what looks like a river marked on the map, roughly an hour from their current location. And uh, Alex says, "Let's get moving. Don't want Morgar to launch the attack without us." And I say, to be clear, you have plenty of time. They're not going to launch the assault for at least another seven hours. Even then, if the assault was launched in seven hours, it would mean some catastrophe forced Morgwar's hand, and the army hasn't been able to wait for you at all. Proceeding through the forest, they enter a darker section where the tree trunks seem to be spaced far apart and the forest floor is strewn with black stones. Above them, a tangle of jagged branches twists upwards into the eclipsing canopy far ahead. They come across what seems to be a dry, stony creek bed. Some noise a short distance away draws their attention to some commotion further down the dried-up creek. And uh, once again, people enter stealth. Jenk uh, gets a 35, and they proceed towards the noise. Hex gets an 18 and goes to check it out. I say, the scene you come across is slightly surprising. Seven drones and seven dwerger are grouped together in the dry creek, some tending to wounds and others picking through pieces of blackened iron armor and tools lying in the dirt. One of the drones seems particularly disheveled, almost feral compared to the muted nature of the others of its kind. The unkempt one is hard to identify, but the others appear to have once been humans or elves, possibly even drow. As always, it's hard to tell with drones, as they all tend to look like pale, reawakened corpses. They are oblivious to the party's presence. Hex pulls out his Apollo and whispers to Gent, what do we make of this? And Jed says, I think we maybe we don't want to startle them. They look pretty harmless. I get them to roll perception with advantage. Jed gets a 22, Hex gets a 24, and Connor gets an unnatural 20. I say, at their feet you can see picks, pry bars, wedges, buckets, and various pieces of armor that appear to have been exposed to intense heat. They suspect the drones are wearing some kind of armor such as chain under their clothes, 
and they notice that all of them except the wild-looking one appear to have a surplus of blades strapped to their person in various spots. The Dwerger are, wielding, are wearing scale armor and seem to have battered steel shields, but they are currently sorting through a number of scimitars and wakazashi that are lying around. And uh, Hex says, looters? Maybe deserters? And Jen says, revolutionaries? My people! And Hex steps out of the brush with his pistol extended and says, What are you doing here? This is a goddamn battlefield. Surrender or die, mantle scum. And several of the Dwerger put up shields and draw short Wakazashi scimitars at their approach. The drones back away behind the Dwerger for protection. They notice that the crazed-looking one needs to be led away by a couple of the others, almost like some kind of domesticated animal. They notice that the Dwerger that didn't draw blades have small tubes in their hands, possibly blowguns. Keep your distance, strangers. I did a lot of uh, phonetic typing for this one. One of the Dwerger croaks in heavily accented common. Where nay from the mantle? The Dwerger mutters slowly, glancing to his companions. Well, you'd better clear out of here fast, because the Draelic army's about to steamroll this patch, patch of shrubs. Just good our freedom. Took it, aye? Where nay slaves of the slaves of the slavers? The Dwerger kicks a piece of armor. Blazing bastards burnt out. And Hex looks at Connor. Did you catch that? Did he say the demons burnt out? They begin to look at one another. What army? The Draelic army. Like the army of our entire united world, coming to stamp out the mantle. Mantle. Like soon. Right here. And Gent is, says they're definitely going to try mimicking that accent. One of the Dwergers shakes their head. Nigh demons. Far slaves. Like us. But fiery. They kick a burnt iron pauldron in their direction. And uh, Gent takes out a health potion and offers it. Just a regular one. Have them roll Insight or Arcana. Hex gets a 13 for Insight. Connor gets another unnatural 20 for Insight. Gent gets a nat 20. And for the Arcana, Hex gets 15. Connor gets 2. And Gent uh, gets 17. I say the Dwerger seem to be saying that they recently took their freedom from creatures that look like them. The Dwerger, so dwarf-like but we're fiery. And Alex says, oh, far hurry. And I, which is how I had spelt it in the phonetic spelling. <clears throat> and they also indicated that these creatures were slaves by nature in some way of their own. This information would suggest to Hex and Gent that the slaves were seen to be Azur taskmasters. Azur being a sort of fire-based dwarf-like elemental, often summoned as a servant. <clears throat> you remember Azurs, right? I think I do, but uh, this is another case where I kind of wish I had the the Drail wiki in front of me. An Azur is like a flaming dwarf. It's just like a D&D monster. Azur. I guess I don't know them as well, other than when you evidently mentioned them. They were in uh, uh, Ashes Against the Grain. Azur. They were used as the demon's foot soldiers. They're probably like, just assume they were like a form of magmen. They're like dwarves made of fire. Oh, and I totally know this now. Yeah, I recognize this art. I just didn't know it by name. So Gent says, I've burned slaves afore and fought. Fought hard. Fought hard. Could, could use folks who fought hard for freedom. And the Dwerger nods, I may be able to help. Wark them bastards, Farge. No thins, newts. 
Jen says, I, and Connor tries, yar, and Jen gets a good laugh out of that. Which way to this army? And they show them on the map. The Dwerger and drones huddle briefly to deliberate, but their conclusion seems unanimously, unanimously positive. And uh, Gent points to the one feral drone and says, Your fella, he fit for a fight? And in brackets, Alex says, Right for a rip dare, eh, bud? <laughs> and Gent says, My newfie heritage is serving me well. <laughs> and I said, The drones nod. One of the Dwerger says, Aye, more and fit. A drone next to the feral one explains in a thin, nervous voice, Drones like us, we normally get a regular share of life force granted to us by the night side. The drone is hesitant to go on, but sees that you seem to understand. Um, but you see, while toiling in Ashgrain out uh, in Ashgrain and the mantle, we have been recently uh, cut off. It takes its toll more gradually for some than others. The drones look to the feral one who pants like a dog. And Dent uh, says, "Can I read if it might be the madness instead? Like if a brain cap would help." I get them a roll insight and they get a 21. I say, so you try to get a measure of the drone's mental state in general. That would give you a baseline for the feral reasonably. As far as you can tell that, or sorry, you try to get a measure of the drone's mental state in general. That would give you a baseline for the feral reasonably. As far as you can tell, that baseline here is pretty low. The drones seem tired, headed towards exhaustion. That might be natural. It might be madness, or it might be this deprived condition that they just described. It's very hard to tell, but you don't think this baseline indicates any particular madness, or else there'd be more likelihood of inconsistency between the different drones. On the other hand, you can't really make that call with the feral one. There's no other case to compare it to. So that means it might be madness, but the drones seem to indicate a gradual deterioration rather than sudden unusual behaviors, so it's possible this is the end state of that deterioration, or maybe this is madness that took hold in the late stages of that deterioration. For what it's worth... Feeding the drone, drone a brain cap would at least rule out madness if it didn't work. Jen says, I will suggest to them grab a brain, brain cap when they reach base and check in. And ask Hex to contact the base and let them know of their arrival. And the drones agree and thank you and uh, thank the group for being so considerate. It seems entirely foreign to them that they would be treated with such care and respect. Jen salutes them before leaving, but a kunku salute, which just looks like a, the funky chicken. I say caca. Hex Not fires the off. Dance. Yeah. Hex fires off another message to Trey this time about Dwerger. I say you get confirmation. Goes down similar to last time. Before you part ways, one of the Dwerger approaches you and holds out a hammer with studs on its striking faces that make it look like some kind of combat tenderizing hammer. Took these out the forge. Made it look like a tool hammer. Good fair fight. He offers it to the group. Hex grabs it. My thanks. Good luck out there. And Gent uh, says, wow, we should always recruit. And Hex gains a plus two vicious light hammer. And with that, the group leaves to find a river that isn't dry. After a brief period of travel without incident, they suddenly find themselves beset by a sound like a distant wailing echo. They cannot determine the source of the noise, and it seems unnatural the way that it suddenly comes into earshot and then lingers ever evenly despite their continued movement. And I have everyone roll a wisdom saving throw with advantage. Jake gets a 17, Hex gets a nat 20, and Connor gets a 22. The constant unnerving noise assaulting them from all sides as they travel through the forest wears on their minds. But, as they but they manage to press on without suffering from any obvious malign influence. 
right up until Gent falls unconscious. And I get Gent to roll insight. And when they get a 17, I say, you're in the forest again. You see the tree where you expect the mutant bird to be, but it's not there. Gent says, oh dear. I say, looking around you, you're suddenly aware of a shade passing over you. Soon you hear the sound of some large flying thing. You recognize it as it lands before you. An all-black humanoid form with massive black wings, white eyes glowing an unnatural green. The form draws a long black blade seemingly from nowhere. Jed says, do I have my blades? I say, which blade do you reach for? And she says, uh, Sunblade. I say, you draw the blade of light, casting radiance across the shadowy forest. The creature's eyes go wide, looking at it. Then it takes a step back and drives its own blade down into the roots of a great tree behind it. The roots twist and writhe. The creature then locks eyes with you. It begins to rain. Not water, though. It rains items. Trinkets. Your items and trinkets. A fat black candle. A broken lock. A jade eight-sided die. A small ivory pipe. Everything in your collection comes pouring down on you out of the sky, and the creature reveals a massive toothy grin that forms out of the darkness of its face. A glittering I just screen of razor-sharp sh- sharp teeth. Yeah? I just want to say I absolutely love the idea of raining the player's items down upon them, especially, like, when they've reached such a high level, because as we have discussed many times before, players really do have a tendency to just hoard as many little trinkets and items as they possibly can and i think it would be i just think this is a very clever way to sort of remind them of everything they have in their their backpacks well and, and trinket gathering is a really essential part of jen's character and i yeah, think certainly really certainly what's, for the kenku what's being i think what i'm uh what i was trying to get across here is like gratz is slowly like getting it's like getting Gent's number. Like Gratz is sort of bestowing this vision upon Gent that is like like last time it was the thing where the bird vomited up the the torrent of coins, and now this time it's like oh it's it's raining trinkets, and and Gratz is getting like more and more of a sense of what Gent's like deep material desires are, and. Um, as everything in the collection comes pouring down out of the sky, uh, and the creature and, and the creature reveals a massive toothy grin that forms out of the darkness of its face, a glittering screen of razor sharp teeth, a tidal wave of gold coins rises behind the creature, and Gent wakes up. To Hex and Connor, Gent is out for two minutes in total. Gent bolts awake, shaking. Gent is definitely unsettled. I think we need to destroy the rod. I say, uh, did Connor and Hex do anything while Gent is out? And uh, while she was out, Connor would probably be doing medicine checks and stuff. Gets a nat 20. Not sure how much that matters, though. I say, for what it's worth, Gent actually has one of the lesser brain caps on her. And Gent says, he notes my hollow bones. And uh, Hex says, huh, maybe we should catch up to those illithids. They seem to know a bit about it. Connor probably, I say, Connor probably recognizes this as an unnatural magical effect brought on by the supernatural wailing that's been assaulting them the past while. It's also possible it inflicted some kind of mental effect, so this may be worth a brain cap or a greater restoration. So Connor casts greater restoration on Gent and says, I feel we need to save the brain caps for emergencies. And so in that case, that, like I said basically that Gent is out for two minutes, but that's assuming that they don't do anything to bring her out of it. So with Connor establishing 
that he casts greater restoration i'm like okay so in retrospect when you cast greater restoration that's uh when gent wakes up indicating that the sudden loss of consciousness was indeed a type of madness effect brought on by the forest strange magic Gent says well that sucked and uh that's where we broke oh damn just part way through the forest yeah i was i was expecting to get further the like further in well i mean we've been recording for about 50 minutes now and uh you know that's it's basically this is the start of operation failing moon is not not uh an an epic quest to battle anyone or anything like that it's just going through the forest and meeting up with all their contacts from the act thus far since they've begun investigating Agalok and uh, rallying together all the contacts that they can, all the allies that they can get their hands on. I mean, I, I feel like I say it every episode now, but you really feel that build towards, you know, the big thing coming to the end of, of this campaign. Or at least the act. I think this or one at least feels the, well, more... The, Oh, sorry. You had said that there's another act after this one. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I guess. Uh, I guess my point is that any time that anybody in any media, be it TV or a movie, when when there's a, a sequence where we revisit the characters we have met in previous encounters, to me, it's always sort of like an indication where it's like, oh, we're in the end game now. If we're revisiting all of the people we met in the past, that must mean that we're coming to a conclusion of some kind. It's an interesting kind of structure because the acts in this uh, campaign go... So first act is like the tutorial act for um, uh, the caravan ride part of it. And then the second act is just the caravan tour, the tour of the Deathlands. The third act was the trip to Sitra Akra. The fourth act was the Arctopus. The fifth act is Agalok. And in Agalok, we have sort of like, as we're mentioning, it's like they do a series of missions in act five, but then there's sort of this bit near the end that we're at now where they're like revisiting all their contacts that they made that act. But then act six is back to Sitra Akra. And so there's a similar... Uh, scheme there wherein like just like act five has like okay you do a number of quests that introduce you to characters all over agalock and then towards the end the quests in that act are about you know sort of rallying together those characters that they met that happens within the sort of brackets of the sitra akra act where they went to sitra akra and the one where they're going to go back so like this is a, a thing that I'm going to use again, where next act, they're going to be going back to Sitra Akra. And it's that whole thing of like going back to Larvae and everything and like revisiting all the places they had been before. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it strikes me as being kind of structurally like a thing inside a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of of the sort of narrative storytelling conventions more than the conventions of how D&D campaigns or adventures are constructed. Of course, that, you know, that other facet of, uh, of game creating that we discuss. 
You know, it's a funny thing. I've been I've been a bit bummed out about my I, I, I think I'm just like generally going through a bit of a depressive phase. But like I've been having trouble being satisfied with the game that I'm running currently, my boots on the ground game. And mm -hmm. it's funny because I can't quite figure out what it is that is so dissatisfying for me it's like one of the things that really hits me and like i keep thinking about like well what if i was using a different system or something like that but then the thing that's always coming back to me is like well teeth is running fine like i'm running i'm trying to run boots on the ground more or less the way that i'm running teeth but for some reason it's working with teeth and it's not working with boots on the ground and i just uh I don't know what it is. One thing that I notice is that like a lot of these Forge in the Dark games have a larger or like not a rule, but a suggestion or or advice it is advised that your setting in a Forge in the Dark game is like not too big, that it doesn't cover too large of an area, and that like it's fairly centralized and like local. And that is something that like I haven't really been doing with boots on the ground, but I don't know if that's the problem, you know, like, hmm. I feel like anything can be the problem. And it's just like, I just gotta, I, I can't figure it out. Yeah. Ultimately Except the problem I, could just be that you're not feeling very inspired, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely part of it is like, yeah, I, I was feeling inspired and I'm, I'm not anymore. And that's something that comes with the depression, but like, um, yeah, it's also, like, I say that I'm dissatisfied, but I think, like, the players are totally enjoying it, is the thing. It's just, like, I don't know what I'm doing, I guess. I, like, hmm. I feel like I've introduced elements that I'm not sure where I'm going with them, and, like, I just, I was expecting it to come together, and it's just not. I don't know. Hmm. I wish I had some, like, sage advice, but, uh, like, I'm not... I'm not playing in that game and uh, I've seen I've seen what you've sent me of it, but I feel like I don't have enough insight into it to to even offer any suggestions. Yeah, if your play, I guess I guess if your players are satisfied, then just keep it up and maybe you'll find that groove eventually as long as they're having a good time. Right. I guess that's why I keep hoping. But like, I don't know. I just like finished the session last time and I was just like, oh, I don't know, man. I don't know. I just don't know. But like, I don't know. It's funny because so with teeth, everything seems to come pretty naturally. I guess this is another thing is that like I'm not having this inspiration problem with teeth. Um, teeth seems to provide plot hooks and direction for my game pretty naturally as part of the way it's being created. And like I don't know. I'm 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 definitely like envious of that because like that is what I want to achieve with my own game, but it doesn't quite it's not quite there and like I don't know. I um I've also been thinking about so uh I recently got asked to potentially run a game for my sister's tattoo parlor. And, That's right. Uh, you were telling me about this off the show. This is something interesting because like I think about, um, like, I could just set it in Drail. Like, Drail is like a fantasy setting that I have already established and I already know everything about. But, like, I kind of don't want to set it in Drail. I kind of want to set it somewhere new. But it's that issue of, like, 
having to create something new from scratch when I already have such an already established thing. Um, it's just kind of funny to me. It's like, I don't know. I, I want to be creating some new setting and everything, but every, every once in a while I'm like, ah, but I already have this. Like I already, I've already done all this work somewhere else. I don't feel like there's any right or wrong answer to that either. You know, you look at, uh, published authors there are authors who write all of their books in the same world and then there are authors who write every book in a different world that they create yeah ain't, i don't know about nothing wrong with going back to drail it's a big place yeah it's true i just like i i think that part of drail is like a lot of the conflicts in drail are so central to the plot in my main game that like i don't want to have like side stories interfering with them you know? Hmm. Well, again, it's a big place. You could just set it far, far removed. A tiny little corner of Drail that uh, Mpox Finest hasn't, hasn't even touched. I mean, so the easy way of doing that is I can set, I can always set a game in the Wasteland where I've never set any Drail games in the Wasteland but I've always had a lot going on in the background in the wasteland where there are the there's the Red Fang and the Black Black Tusk tribes at war. And there's this whole war between like uh, animal folk, beast folk in that part of the map that I've never explored in a game. And, and like that is uh, a side thing that I could totally focus on if I wanted to. But it's it's very at the same time I have a very specific idea of what that game is and that is a game that's very specifically about like animal folk and sort of like I don't know I guess it's got kind of a furry vibe to it but like more importantly it's just like set in sort of like uh, a deserty you know it's almost like Five Goes West <laughs> but like I wasn't expecting I, that pull but okay. Well, I almost said Redwall Redwall when I was talking about how they it's all with animal people. Yeah. But then the thing is I was going for like a specific kind of western vibe with the wasteland. Oh, all right. And so I do like the I think it's like it's more like Fievel goes west or Rango or something. Um, oh, see Rango. That seems like totally totally in line with that that the uh, the flavor of the games you tend to create. Yeah, and then like a big battle between tribes of animal people in the desert and uh, kaiju, big kaiju, trim trimera panteras and uh, uh, whatever else, uh, borphophagus, etc. But yeah, honestly, for the one for the tattoo parlor, I'm thinking I got this. Uh, I got this sketch outline of Iceland that kind of makes it look like a fantasy world. And I've been spending so much time researching Iceland for the stuff that I've been working on set in Iceland. I, it's easy for me if I just use that, you know? Yeah. I mean, why not? Just sort of fictionalize my own Iceland. I don't think that they're... Frankly, Tom, like, I know that you, for your own edification, really like to create new stories and new ideas. But frankly, I wouldn't even think that there was anything wrong if you wanted to rerun a campaign that you've already run before with a different group. Yeah, but I have a lot of trouble doing that. Like, like really? once I've, I think that once I've run a campaign like that, it's hard for me to go back. Like I can do modules out of context and revisit them. 
but I can't do an actual plot line because in my mind, that plot line has like already been resolved. Like the changes that Empok's finest and Coyote's Aegis wrought upon Drill have already been wrought and are like, like almost like set in stone. Like I, I have added, but only, only inside your brain. Yeah. And the map and the map that we have online. Oh, sure. But you make a new map. I'll you can say, reset though, the map. I will say, though, I, I'm very, like, the initial pitch for Wicked Ones, where you just start and you've left your old dungeon and you're plotting to make a new dungeon, I like that hook. I think that, like, this is one thing that's really worked with Boots on the Ground, I'll say, is the base building side of it. Everybody really digs the, like, XCOM-style, like, part where between missions they, like, build new facilities and, like, beef up their defenses and things like that. So like, and you know. and it is crazy to me that uh, I read sort of your your notes on the base building stuff in Boots on the Ground, and now that I've read Wicked Ones, I feel like there's you know the potential for a lot of cross pollination of ideas with how the dungeon building is handled in Wicked Ones. Well, the thing is, in truth, we have all the credit to turn to. Blades in the Dark, because they Blades in the Dark is the game that all the Forged in the Dark games are based off of, and it has the same thing where you your heist crew and your turf expands, like you gain new turf over time and get new things. The thing is with Teeth, it very much takes out some of the spatial elements of that of that part of the game and makes it much more temporal. It becomes much more about what you can do in the allotted time given. And so there isn't so much time spent on like, you know, having territory or like a space that you manage. But you do still have the elements where you like um, you put your funds towards certain facilities like a workshop or something. Like I know Spilly has a sterile environment as one of his Mm -hmm. things in teeth. And like that's the extent to which it appears in teeth. But like, yeah. Once you get more concrete, once you get more tangible about it with like the dungeon or the base, um, then it becomes much more obviously like, hey, I'm just uh, I'm building up my base. There's a base building part of this game. Not to not to get ahead of ourselves, because I am going to cover this when I really talk about Wicked Ones. But um, did you look at all at the the dungeon building component of Wicked Ones between uh, now and our last recording? No, I figured you'd be giving me the I will. And I will say that this is like the hyper tangible version. Like, get out the graph paper. We are going to collaborate on drawing a map together. That level, like, it's almost more like a board game than it is uh, an RPG. And uh, so I kind of feel like maybe Wicked Ones is like one end of the spectrum of Forged in the Dark games when it comes to sort of the base component of it and maybe teeth is the opposite end where the idea of the base is just sort of this nebulous thing you know my character and teeth has a sterile environment but it's not like we have like a little drawing of where everything is laid out whereas with wicked ones like you detail a map with your gm everybody collaborates on building it so I just sent an example of what the uh, layout looks like in a turf map for Blades in the Dark. This is actually the layout for uh, the um, 
the prison that players go to if they are caught. Um, yeah, see this, and I guess this would be dead center on that spectrum that I was talking about, because this does have that spatial component laid out in this, this sort of grid idea, but uh, it's it's not quite, you know, full-on map building the way Wicked Ones is. Hell yeah, well, let's get on to some full-on map building. Not me. Before I even get into the map building, though, uh, I have now had, you know, the last time we recorded, as I said, I was just like in a, a flurry of activity, just a random busy period. Uh, one of the days that week, I wound up having my <laughs> house's power shut off for the whole day without warning. The the people who were coming to do it to do work on the house, they came a day earlier than they said. So it was just total chaos for me that week. Um, but since then, I've had more time to really go through the... Uh, through the free edition of Wicked Ones, which you can get on DriveThruRPG, again... Zero dollars, zero cents. It's absolutely free. And the document is 342 pages. It's filled with great color art. Like, I'm I'm kind of shocked at how much you get for the price of zero dollars. And you can get, you can spend money to buy the deluxe edition, which I eventually might because of the, the bonus stuff that it comes with. But this gives you everything you need to play Wicked Ones. And uh, relating to sort of uh, reviews I have given to other games in the past, this gives you like top to bottom what you need to play. Like the, the first chapter is called The Basics, and it really just explains how the system works. So you don't need any other source books if you want to play Wicked Ones. You can just get this awesome free edition of the main book, and you've got like all the rules on how you do the roles, how you get started. It's loaded with advice for GMs, um, flashbacks, progress clocks, fortune rolls, gear and supply, uh, tiers and enemies, advancement. Like, it's it's really impressive how much they give you here for nothing, for absolutely nothing. It's really great. You can play the full game just based off this document. And um, since I'm talking about it, I will mention a few other cool things that I like about this document. It is loaded with hyperlinks. Uh... Like, not only does it have a built-in table of contents in the PDF, which is always a handy thing, but when it references stuff, like even in the table of contents uh, on, you know, the, was it, the third, the fourth page or the third page of the document, you can just click on any chapter title or heading and it will take you to that page. And when you're reading a block of text, if there's a reference to like a rule it'll hyperlink and you can click on that and it'll take you to that part of the document. Just a fantastic sort of Wikipedia-like uh, source book that makes it really easy to hop around and reference rules on the fly. Uh, I, I would say this is like really welcoming to someone who doesn't have a lot of experience running one of these games, uh, like running an RPG, because you can just, you don't, you don't have to keep your, you know, if it was a physical thing, you'd be 
you'd be keeping your fingers in between pages and having different like colored post-its and stuff to find the rules you want. Well, with this one, you can just navigate with the click of a mouse, which I really appreciated. Um, just, uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to talk about just in terms of this as a product. Oh yeah, there is. Um, last time we were talking about, uh, like we had built you a character. We were looking at the different races and we were looking at the different playbooks, uh, you know, sort of the class, the character classes, essentially. Um, the deluxe edition comes with four special playbooks, uh, that are four different types of monsters and these four types of monsters have like much more complex and fully original rules. They don't they don't really resemble other forged in the dark playbooks that you've seen. Uh, so I'm very intrigued to see them. I might have to pick them up, uh, pick up the deluxe edition so that I can learn about brain eaters, which are tentacled horrors, doom seekers, which are multi-eyed aberrations, face stealers, which are doppelgangers and gold mongers, which are dragon-like creatures. So it's, it's cool that they give you like some, some enhanced playbooks to play with in the deluxe edition too. Um, also of note, uh, this game has a solo mode. If you want to just play solo, there is a solo mode for it. Uh, I believe it's, it's only available in the deluxe edition. I didn't see it as I was going through the free edition. Uh, but, you know, f f uh, control one or more powerful PCs and three minion packs in this mode, fine-tuned for play with only one player or one-on-one, -on -one, one player, one GM. Many random spark tables and generators help create an emergent story for you to play through. This is cool. Well done. A-plus stuff. Uh, I, I love this whole package. So... Last time we built you a character, uh, we were just sort of getting started talking about how, you know, how the gameplay flows. Uh, I mentioned before the game is, di is divided into a cycle of phases. Lurking, calamity, raiding, and blowback. Lurking is sort of the, the downtime. You can count up loot. Uh, you can lose yourself in revelry. You can spend downtime working on improving the dungeon, uh, torturing prisoners, other nefarious activities typical of dungeon life. Uh, the calamity phase is when things start going wrong. And uh, each of these phases all have like randomized tables that go with them. Uh, so for example, calamity... Uh, you it's sort of it you roll to determine how things are going and based on how things are going like how uh, what level of of dungeon calamity you're up against you might encounter different issues that you have to resolve for example a structural problem uh your dungeons rooms walls traps and so on are failing or falling apart in some way a cave-in fills a tunnel with rubble or a lava flow bursts through a wall. Um, so maybe, maybe your dungeon calamity is something like that that you have to address. But it seems like uh, one that is like low level and you're likely to encounter it is a dungeon invasion where heroes from the outside try to dungeon crawl your dungeon. Um, an adventurer and a few hirelings follow your minions home. 
or adventurers spot smoke rising from your dungeon, or even just a bear wanders into your dungeon looking for a new place to live. So your dungeon's being invaded. Um, and there are other other types, uh, like your, the denizens of the dungeon might start infighting, or there could be some external factor, like uh, a dire mole burrows into your dungeon, making a second entrance to it. Uh, there are random tables. There's so many great random tables in this for different kinds of calamity. Um, Tom, why don't you roll... Man, how... Uh, oh, roll 2d6. And then take the results and match them to the table. So we're roll 2d6 and we're treating them like percentiles. Uh, so 55? 55. So uh, if your dungeon in the Calamity phase suffers a minor Calamity, uh, one of your creatures roams the halls until it finds a creature or minion and devours them. So there's some infighting brewing in the dungeon. Uh, one of your minions devoured an imp. Ah, oh, man, skeleton. That's right. And let's let's roll up a major calamity just for fun. Same thing? Yeah. 64. 64. A hole in a wall opens up and lava begins flowing into ah, your dungeon. This is what I was afraid of. <laughs> yep. So uh, the Calamity phase, you have to address these things. And of course, uh, dungeon invasions. It does say here that uh, more often than not, though, like a dungeon invasion should be a decided thing launched by the GM. Uh, you can roll it up at random, but it recommends just like actually plotting the invasions as though they are a, a predetermined encounter. Um, after the Calamity phase, after you're done dealing with the Calamity phase, you get a raiding phase where you and the party uh, get to decide on uh, a, a raid against a faction of the world above. Because no dungeon is self-sufficient, you need resources from the outside, maybe you need warm bodies standing between you and the adventurers, or you need riches to fuel your horde, you need materials to build rooms, so... During the raiding phase, you need to plan out a raid and execute it. And uh, these are like heists in Blades in the Dark. You need to set up the scene and give the GM key pieces of info like what, what's the goal you're trying to accomplish? What is the target that you're launching the raid against? Uh, you need a plan. Everybody goes through the plans and like details it out. And then... Uh, and then you go through the raid. You run through it with the, the GM. Um, so here are some common reasons to raid from the source book. You want to further the steps of your master plan, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Get revenge against those who slighted you because they deserve it. Press other monsters into service as minions. Stop a troublesome clock to avoid its fallout. Subjugate a faction to expand your influence in the area. Um, and you loot automatically with every raid. So focus on accomplishing things. And, you know, there are different difficulty tiers of targets that have different levels of payout depending on your different levels of success. You, pr you perform the raid, and then you enter the last phase, which is the blowback. Uh, what happened with your raid? Maybe your raid went off the rails. Maybe it just went a little awry, or maybe it went perfectly. The nature of the blowback uh, and where it comes from is up to the GM, but 
You can also just sort of roll on a randomized table to tell you how it went. And then the following phase after raiding is the blowback phase, where you have to deal with the potential consequences of your raids. Um, the bl blowback, the type of blowback is generally decided by the GM, but there is also a table that you can roll on to sort of determine the type of blowback or the severity of it. And once again, the most common form of blowback is a dungeon invasion by a group of adventurers, you know, soldiers from the faction that you just launched a raid against. They're like, we got to get our stuff back from those monsters. And so a group of adventurers winds up in your dungeon and heading towards your sanctum where you and your party hang out, hide out, uh, and you have to deal with them. It's funny because in Teeth, so Teeth doesn't have blowback, but blowback is a very uh, common concept in Forge in the Dark games, particularly in Blades in the Dark. It, represent, it's, it represents heat, um, heat that you've picked up from your jobs that you've done. But in Teeth, your thing that happens between uh, jobs is very much just like random. Like you just roll a d20 on a table and like you get some wacky result. Um but these this blowback it's like more keyed towards like tier and stuff, isn't it? It is, yeah. And uh it's one of the functions of this game, it's one of the features of Wicked Ones that really does feel like I don't know, it it's it, it's it effectively communicates to me that the players are playing as the villains, right? Like there's always going to be a consequence to their action because when the monster raids the village, the villagers aren't just like, "Oh well, Let's just move on with our lives. It's always, no, we got to round up the mob and light the torches to kill the beast. So, I, just thought that, I think that's a pretty, I think that's a cool function of the game. And something else I should say, I can just talk about it here, but uh, something I thought was really interesting about Wicked Ones is that it has a sort of a designed end game to it. It's not often in an RPG that you can that it has a built-in spot where it's like okay and this is where the game can end this is where the campaign can end um i mean teeth definitely has that teeth uh, see i don't know i haven't read through teeth because I've, I've just been playing teeth well teeth has the thing where you have the season clock right and so you right. guys have to be done your job before the year is out or else you're in the veil forever Right. Okay. Get, so yeah, it's uh, it's too. it's like it's like a ticking clock with teeth. Um, with wicked ones, there are a few different potential end games. Uh, the one that I kind of the one that I that stood out to me that I really like is um, if you if all your players successfully like hit max level, basically they unlock every special ability that they can unlock for their playbook. Uh, they ascend to what is called Dark Lord status, and that's the game. You became the most powerful monster. But uh, another way, another potential way of of concluding your Wicked Ones campaign is when you create your character on the character sheet. There is a section for the master plan, and the master plan is something that all the players sort of go over and decide on together. And ultimately what it is, is like, it's, it's, it's what it says. It's the, it's the master plan for your party of monsters. And the character sheet gives you, I think it's six 
uh, sort of checkboxes, like the six steps of your master plan to pull off the big thing, whatever it is. You want to complete the ritual to summon your elder god or, or whatever. And uh, that master plan can be used by the GM as the outline of the campaign, right? Uh, each step in that master plan can be achieved at different points. You know, the GM can sort of decide how many chapters they want. Uh, every third chapter, they get a tick in their master plan, and that gives you the complete outline of your campaign right there. Um, obviously, you don't have to adhere to this. You can keep the campaign going on ad infinitum. But I think it's kind of neat because it's just not often that you have an RPG that uh, is designed to go on for multiple sessions, but also has a built-in sort of end point. It's not something like Fiasco where you play it over the course of a, a couple hours and like it's designed to be self-contained. I don't know, can you think of any other RPGs where it has sort of like a suggestion for where the game ends? built into Promethean. it like that Promethean. Promethean the created because that's the world of darkness game where you play as like a Frankenstein monster and the game basically ends when you achieve mortality oh, once you okay. become a real boy yeah that works that makes sense once you become a real boy neat um, but uh, yeah the two big ones that pop up in my head are are Promethean and uh, teeth. Teeth, but and but with as we were saying though, with teeth, it really is like, like it's just it's a clock ticking, and you got to race against the clock, right? Well, you can theoretically finish before the clock. Um, you know the points that the agenda points that you guys build up, right? That you eventually get boons for. The last boon is just called Force Finale. And that's just like, well, you've done enough of your plan. Like, this is the time to make it go. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So ideally, you're trying to hit that point before the clock runs out. Hmm. Yeah. So that's like, that one is like sort of a race. Yeah, kind of. Um, it's It's very much like the pressure is on the players to figure out how they're going to achieve their objectives in time. Uh, and that is you could easily just sort of wander around and fight monsters and not do anything of consequence. Yeah, and that is that is also certainly the case with uh with wicked ones where like the a lot of control is sort of placed in the player's hands. Like I was saying, like during the raid phase, it obviously the GM can sort of be involved and help help guide and and sort of share ideas with the party, but it is very much put in the player's hands where it's like, okay, so, you know, what do you guys want to do? What do you need? There's a like a little example here of uh, ideas, motivations and goals for raids. OK, where can we get a scroll of rights to finish off the special requirements for the ritual? Maybe hit the wizard tower. It's pretty likely they have a library. Yeah, but they're two tiers above us. That's suicide. Maybe the small town over here has a temple and we can raid that. The GM says, yeah, sure, their archives will probably have the rights you need. Okay, we'll go with that. You know, we're going to defile the temple and anger one of their gods and steal the scroll that we need. So, like, the, the missions are sort of placed very much in the player's hands. Also something that I find kind of neat about it. it. It has a sort of, 
almost like open world feel to it where the the goals of the players are are very much placed in their hands but it's all it's all framed within this idea of like you were the monsters you were running your own dungeon so what would the monsters do um let's talk about the dungeon a bit then uh dungeons yeah, op open up your uh, your document and head down to chapter four, page one sixty seven. Um, I would no normally I'd be like let's let's build a dungeon, but it feel this is really visual. I don't think it would be great for for a podcast, but we can certainly touch on the different aspects of dungeon creation. Um, the first thing being that the group has to choose a dungeon theme giving you a theme around which to like help base your characters, the campaign, you can really decide on the flavor here. And uh, each theme comes with a core feature, which is a strong ability related to it, and a list of tier three rooms that you can build within your dungeon to gain strong bonuses. And then they're also available tier one and two rooms uh, that are the same for every dungeon theme. So the, again, it's very sort of video gamey or board gamey, uh, more so than I would say your average RPG. You'll uh, you'll see as we get to it. One of the things that I actually really like about what they provide in the source book for building your dungeon is like a legend of icons. They create sort of their own iconographic language that you can refer to to build your dungeon. Um, you can. If you want to take a look at it, you can see some on like page 198 and uh, there are more on the subsequent pages where they just give you like these little symbols that mean different things like spikes, darts, pitfall, explosive barrel, pressure plate, a tripwire. And so I'm noticing that there are different types of dungeons here, the di dungeon themes. I guess that's the equivalent of like your crew. Yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah. Um, the thing with the dungeon themes is not only does it give you a flavor for your campaign and a theme that you can sort of base your characters around, but, uh, each theme that there are tier one, tier two, and tier three rooms that you can build within your dungeon, uh, that have, you know, different effects based on their tier. Uh, the tier one and tier two rooms are the same for every dungeon theme, and the tier three rooms are unique to each theme. So, like, if you have the stronghold-themed dungeon, the tier three rooms you can buy for the stronghold are different than the ones you could build for the forge or the enclave. So there's a, a degree of customizability there as well, and, like, consider your theme so that you can plan out down the line what uh what the big cool things your dungeon does will be uh one of the reviews that i was reading about this game said that effectively the dungeon is like the main character um and sort of the and the players are in service of the dungeon so yeah the dungeon themes are enclave forge hideout stronghold and temple which would you choose out of curiosity Hideout. Hideout. Let's take a look at the hideout. So a hideout is a place to lay low. Keep I will your... say like in Scum and Villainy, this is basically what your ship is. Where your tier ah, three upgrades okay. would be your things that are unique to your ship, but then your tier one and two would be things that are just like any ship can get them. 
So your hideout, uh, escaping detection is your primary concern. You live and operate under the radar. Teamwork and efficiency are the keys to your success. And you start with this core function, Agents of Chaos. Your dungeon excels at placing blame on others or meddling with faction plans. On a success on blowback, your minions gain morale and you can finish or reset a faction clock. Uh, and then the cool hideout tier 3 rooms that you can only get with a hideout are the dojo, the gambling den, the gear locker, the obstacle course, the planning room, the roost, and the tavern. Seems like a pretty sweet little hideout. I want the gear locker. The gear locker. Let's just take a look at it. You're always, you always get geared up before leaving the dungeon. You gain a supply slot and have a steady supply of the following concoctions. Climbing gear, glow sticks, smoke bombs, tar bombs, throwing weapons, thunderstones, and traps. A gear locker might need a trove of concoctions, crates of gear, or matching outfits. I give the signal to pull out thunderstones. Then I kick the door in and get out of the way and let them toss the stones in. Back to the wall as I hear loud bangs. I point at the waiting brute and give him a thumbs up to go. I like that description. That, that's, uh, I, had, I, I was so immersed in reading the rules of this game that I had yet to consider how the narration would go. And I like the idea of sort of treating this this defense against uh, an incoming party of heroes attacking your dungeon, you treat it almost like uh, like defending yourself against a police raid or something. Kick open the door, toss out a couple smoke bombs, everybody look away, all right, get in there now. See, this is why uh, boots on the ground should work. What the heck's going on? I'll just borrow liberally from uh, from Wicked Ones, maybe. Um, I don't know. It's tricky because the wicked ones, like you say, you're very definitively the villain, whereas boots in the ground, like you're not. It's the other way around. Be more like the heroes. So I won't get too deep into the rules for uh, the denizens of the dungeon. I will say this. Uh, you automatically get some imps that work in your dungeon. They're just like the grunts of, uh, of the dungeon. They maintain stuff. Uh, and build stuff for you. They're your like little helpers, um, and you can you can get creative with the imps. Uh, you can have like demonic imps, or maybe little clockwork helper guys, uh, or small rock elementals. Um, you know, all sort of based around the flavor of the game that you're running in the dungeon that your players decided on. Then you can also attract creatures to the lair. Um, there are different tiers of creatures. You, they give you the rules here for creature creation. Um, give it two traits from the following list. Clever, corrupted, corrosive, diseased, incorporeal, flaming, freezing, magical, oozing, sneaky, strong, swarming, terrifying, tireless, or venomous. Traits give you a hook to pull, in the fiction, uh, to pull into the fiction when describing how they face off versus adventurers or cause problems. For example, a lava snake is strong and flaming. A sludge monster is corrosive and oozing. And once again, they give you just cute little icons uh, to represent all different types of monsters. And then minions are packs of minor monsters uh, that are specific to players. Players each have a minion slot, which they can fill with minions by paying gold to hire them or coercing them to join with, uh, to join in uh, during the downtime phase, like going on a raid or convince them to go on a raid, things like that. 
Once they're a part of your dungeon, the horde covers their sustenance, and in return, they guard your dungeon halls. And uh, so these are like just weaker versions of your characters, weaker versions of the wicked ones. Uh, they have primary action. They don't have stress. They can't resist. They're they're like uh, an NPC that is you know stronger than a monster but weaker than a player character and uh and there's minions are created as similar to you know just about any other thing in something like blades in the dark where there's like a little tiny sheet with like a checklist of actions and a checklist of potential upgrades and uh you know they get a dark impulse just like uh player characters do so you select that from a list um, just these little cards that you can use to keep track of the minion guys who help out the player characters. And then you design the dungeon collaboratively. Uh, the GM decides on the outline, like the boundaries, and then everybody collaborates to fill in the dungeon. Uh, and let me see here. I know they have a good sample dungeon in here that you can take a look at. There are all sorts of other rules that go into this uh, discoveries made as you expand your dungeon. But let's just take a look at, here we go, uh, page 217. You can see here is uh, a tier three dungeon. This is like a, a, a later, later game dungeon that has been filled in and built thoroughly. And you can see that there are, you know, things that have been discovered as the dungeon was expanded. Like there's a lava flow that flows in at one point. Um, you can see some creatures around here. There's a big spider's nest. There's a pit of snakes. There's some fire elementals. Uh, you can even see some traps. There's a crushing wall with a tripwire. Uh, yeah, the lightning bolts it, it, that strikes a puddle of water, a scrying pool, animated statues, and then I mentioned it before, but there's a, every dungeon has a sanctum, which is where your players are hiding out. And uh, the, the whole dungeon, like the dungeon invasions and using this map, it's very much like a, almost like a tower defense board game where like your, your players are not the active component in, in, uh, in certain parts of this game, really what you're doing is you're like setting a bunch of home alone traps and then letting the NPC heroes uh, trip them up and see how they go. What do you think of that map there, Tom? I love it. What do you want me to say about it? I don't know. I, just, I, I figured this would totally be your jam. Um, I, I really like that this stuff is just provided for you in the, uh, in the source book. Like, look at all the, the icons for, like, trap mechanisms, creatures, light tongue speakers, dark tongue speakers. Just having these little doodles in sort of a standardized legend. I think that's great. I think it's it's really handy. And even if you don't have any artistic ability, like, it's pretty easy to copy their icon for, like, a giant. It's just a really big frowny face, right? But... Now you know what it means. Now everybody can refer to it and know what it means. I think that's that's awesome. I see here, now that I look at that map again, they got a giant in their prison cell. Yeah. Um, yep. And uh, 
I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I really need to touch upon. I feel like we've sort of covered all the main points. Uh, what do you think of all this, Tom? I mean, uh, oh, actually, there is, you know what, before I even ask you the overview, there is one more thing that I will touch on. I'm not going to go too deep into it, though. Something that I found uh, pretty different with Wicked Ones versus other Blades in the Dark games, other Fortune in, the, in, in Darkness games, is that they still treat magic similarly to how you would treat it in something like D&D, in that there are different schools of magic. Uh, the schools of ma dark arts are what they're called here. Uh, there's the laws of monster science, the laws of spell magic, and the laws of ritual magic. Um, there's also uh, sorcery, witchcraft, and channeling. And then each of these different types of magic have uh, like different tiered spells, different restrictions on what you can do. It's a lot less freeform than I'm used to from uh, like a Forged in the Dark game. That said, I haven't played a lot of them, so I don't know. Uh, what, when it comes to something like teeth, because there is magic involved in teeth, uh, is it treated similarly to this? Are there like lists of spells? Uh, there are not lists of spells, but there are lists of types of magic. Like you, you choose a type of magic and a means by which to do that magic. So I believe, I know that, uh, Pog's thing in our game of teeth is that he has coins that he can, uh, use to truck with, uh, things from beyond. Um, yeah, uh... Achmed's magic type is like uh ritual and is like prayer based. Um I can't remember what your thing was. Um prayer based ritual. I'm gonna have to pull up spill. I should know this because we're playing on Thursday. What my magic? My discipline? Yeah. Cosmism. Oh, yeah? With my sliding puzzle. Ah, yes. You have a strange puzzle that allows you to alter the rules of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so there are different schools of magic in Wicked Ones that allow you to do different things. Uh, monster science allows you to make concoctions and contraptions. Uh, spell magic allows you to uh, do like soothsaying, evocations, illusions, uh, and ritual magic allows you to have a ritual, like create a ritual that will have an impact on the story depending on the tier. You know, like uh, say one part of your master plan is like overthrowing a barony. Uh, so a tier two ritual might be planting fear in the Baron's mind, causing him to betray the Duke, for example. Um, so yeah, there are different forms of magic, much more intricate than uh, than I would that I'd normally expect from this kind of uh, Blades in the Dark based game. And once again, there are loads of random example tables, like uh, 66 potions that you can generate, 66 magic items that you can make, 
Um, they're all 11 to 66 using 1d6 as percentiles. Um, so yeah, dark arts, I guess, are the, the last thing that I'll touch upon. Uh, I almost feel like they're sort of needlessly elaborate, but at the same time, the game gives you rules to just make up whatever spell you want and use these rules to make it work. So I guess because they don't force you to adhere to it, it's just sort of like a nice little bonus to all of it. Anyway, Tom, it sounds like you're enthusiastic about Wicked Ones. Are we running one of yeah, these games soon? Oh, uh, I don't know if I'll run it. I'd play the hell out of it, though. Um, it seems like a lot of work, maybe. I don't know. I get that, like, you're supposed to share that workload over the group, but, like, uh, it still seems a lot to take on. It is a lot. Um, it, it feels like an RPG and a board game in one. But I think it could actually be really cool. I think a lot of the hardest stuff, like a lot of the work is table setting more than anything. Uh, and once you have like your dungeon laid out, uh, then then it, you could fall into more of a groove and make it more narrative based. I don't know. I'll have to play it to see. Yeah, you should run a game of this. Get get some of your D&D people and uh, me and, and run a run game Wicked of Wicked Ones. ones. I, think we, I think that could be arranged. Hell yeah, I'm down for that. So that's Wicked Ones, and you know what? Next time, let's do Gates. The Gates. Um, I'd be fine to keep doing the Wicked Ones if you had any more to say about it, but yeah, okay. I'm down to do the Gates. I mean, we... The Gates! I, I really do feel that we've covered... Like, we've covered Wicked Ones as a game. We've covered the gameplay loop. We've covered character creation, dungeon creation, uh talking about you know we talked about different factions last time and even a, a a potential end game state so i don't know if i have like more to say about it based on the uh the source book but i will say that this is a game like i'm i'm totally on board with this i'm i'm quite enthusiastic about it. i might just have to run a game of this so oh we'll, man we'll see That's so sick so the question is would you ch choose a sandbox or make your own uh, I'd probably start by choosing a sandbox. You know, I, I playing when I'm playing a new game, I'd probably go with the what's prefab and provided, and to to really get the hang of it, so that I don't have to think about, you know, customization on top of all the new rules that I'm running. But you know, a second game that I ran of Wicked Ones, I'd for sure do my own. Hell yeah! Well, you just let me know when you're running a game of Wicked Ones, because I'm down for that. Uh, is that it? I think that's that it, it for, for me. All right. Uh, if you want to see, or if you want to follow us, uh, message us, get in touch with us, you know, any of that stuff, check us out on Facebook, comparing campaign on facebook.com. Or if you want to get in touch or no, not get in touch with us. Uh, if you want to see our show notes and supplemental materials, check us out on wordpress.comparingcampaign.com. We've fallen behind a while on that and I need to get to work on it. Uh, that's it. Not me. Uh, level up. Add some rooms to your dungeon. Hell yeah. I'm down for that. Take care, everybody.